Make sure you check out our online store where we work with our graphic designer to create stunning garment and product designs that feature a wide variety of aircraft types such as British fighters, World War II aircraft, American bombers, Russian fighters and much more. You can pick your favourite designs and personalise any items within our Redbubble store that range from clothing right the way through to stationery. All of our designs feature our logo so you can show your support for the channel while getting a quality product. You can head to our website aircrewinterview.tv and click store or go to redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash AC interview. Thank you and enjoy. Andrew, we're going to talk about your time on the Sea Harrier. What, your, what were your first thoughts on the jet? Um, I'll caveat all this by saying my time on a Sea Harrier was not as extensive as some people's time on a Sea Harrier. There are some very more distinguished Sea Harrier pilots than me. But uh, my first thoughts on seeing a jet really were, you know, this is a, a, a frontline jet which just looks proper. I think that's the only way I can describe it. It looked like something that was um, purposeful. And quite honestly, it was a bit scary first time you see it. You think, I'm about to step into this thing and fly it. But they're my first thoughts. So what was the role of the Sea Harrier with the Navy? Sea uh, Harrier is a multi-role uh, fighter, so its primary role was air defence, uh, predominantly using its radar, which you can see in the front here, and uh, AMRAAM missiles. Um, but it was also a ground attack aircraft and pretty, pretty accurate bombing as well, uh, and reconnaissance as well. Pretty basic reconnaissance, reconnaissance camera, but we could do some recce. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's a surprise to me that the CRU could actually do air to ground. Uh, I think our viewers will be surprised about that as well. Yeah, we could do, you know, standard sort of uh, level bombing, loft attacks, and in fact, in dive bombing, it's pretty accurate. The, the radar system, we could use a thing called ASDR, air surface difference ranging, which enabled it sort of effectively the radar was pinging off the ground back to the the aircraft uh, giving really really accurate feedback and we got some extremely uh, accurate bombing from the Sea Harrier using that method. So you, I mean you mentioned it before but can you remember your ground training and what was it like coming from T1 <laughs> to this monster? Yeah the, yeah the ground training again is a bit of a blur mostly because we did it out in um, Akrotiri in Cyprus. Um, the OCU was out there doing some uh, air to air gunnery and so we got to do our ground training out there. I just remember going windsurfing a lot and, uh, <laughs> and having a good time really Mike. But I think it was a bit of ground training thrown in there as well. Yeah you had to do some work at some <laughs> Yeah <point>. exactly. <laughs> Can you talk us through your first flight? And I'm guessing this was in a T, uh, T8, is that correct? Yeah, again, I was really, really lucky to go flying with a guy called Rob Schwab, Schwabby, in a, in a T8 while I was on holdover. Um, a bit of a blurred memory of, of that flight, other than uh, Schwabby let me have a go at hovering in and said I was doing all right. Um, but um, my first flight in a, in a Sea Harrier is a massively memorable one for a couple of reasons. One is you just don't feel like you're ready for it. You have a couple of simulator flights, two flights in a T8, and then it's straight into your first solo. And the guys on the squadron had said, you know, it's going to accelerate a bit quicker than a T8, which was a monster acceleration anyway. You step inside a, a single seat Sea Harrier without anything on the wings, clean aircraft, and you slam the throttle forward. And the acceleration was like, genuinely, you can't explain it to people. And it keeps going. It doesn't just go from like naught to 60. It's naught to 100 in about four seconds, and it will just keep going. Um, so I just remember being blown away by this acceleration. Um, so it must have been a big difference here yeah, coming from the Hawk, that must have been like, whoa. Oh yeah, I mean just an insane difference and again on that first solo flight, um, heading back to the circuit and turning finals and I felt like I was just 
ready. But I mean, these aircraft were tens of thousands of pounds an hour to fly. So they weren't going to spend hours and hours getting you ready. If you weren't ready, if you, if you didn't meet the, the grade, then you'd just be chopped. So um, I felt like I was just ready and as I entered the circuit and landed, it was a, it was a real sort of adrenaline rush for sure. So yeah, let's talk a bit about your flying training and obviously we'll have to talk about the hovering. Can you just talk yeah. through this? Yeah, well again, well, so you've done your first solo in a Sea Harrier and then you get to go and fly in a two-seat T8 again to do some what they call press-ups, so vertical takeoff and landings. You do three of those, it'll be about two minutes of hovering each. And then your second ever solo in a Sea Harrier was to vertically take off and hover. So there you are, heading out in front of everyone's watching, the instructor's watching on their headset speaking to you and, uh, and you slam full power and, and off you go, you get airborne vertically. Um, mine was a bit of a general navex around the dispersal area trying to get myself in a stable hover um, before VLing and you do you know a couple of uh, VTOs and VLs um, and um, yeah I mean I loved it um, but it really is it, it really does get the adrenaline flowing. Yeah well because the Sea Harry was a multi-role fighter I mean the flying training was intense um, I would, the, the instructors were the, you know, the finest instructors in the world, some of the finest pilots in the world. Uh, this jet is an incredibly demanding aeroplane to fly as a pilot, but then to operate as a weapon system and single seat, so you've got no weapon systems operating, navigator helping you out loads and loads of inputs coming in I mean to the point where you know you, you again right on the limit certainly I was limits of my capacity in operating this aircraft but we did everything from the first stage courses the vertical takeoff landing beastall type regime um, and then moving into air combat recce trips level bombing dive bombing um, but predominantly our role of course was air, air defense air to air fighting using the radar and the AMRAM missile and um, yeah, that's a really, really intense type of flying because you know, not only you say flying the aircraft, you're flying these missiles against other aircraft, uh, you're leading your formation uh, members around, um, listening to inputs from the fighter controllers of Freddy's on the ground. So really, really challenging, high pace um, training regime. Yeah, do you ever look back at this jet and think, Christ, I actually flew this? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's weird you say that because I think, I think a lot of pilots that have left and been out some time, been out in the Navy quite a long time now, and um, you, you do look back on it and think it's almost like a dream state. Did I actually go and fly that aircraft? Um, I mean, I can imagine myself doing it, but it, it sort of almost seems like it was a different life, different experience, someone else doing it. Yeah, I think like uh, for a lot of like um, young boys and young girls, like, it's almost like being an astronaut because it's, yeah. it's like almost an impossible dream to have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I just feel so incredibly lucky to have not only flown fast jets, but to have flown the Sea Harrier. But if, yeah, if you've got the young, young guys and girls out there listening and wanting to do it, just go for it. It is hard work. You know, it's not quite what you imagine. It's certainly not the movie, it's not Top Gun, but, uh, but, it, but it's an incredibly rewarding uh, type of flying and you won't regret it. So what were the strengths and weaknesses of the Harrier? Um, so strengths wise the, the radar systems the weapon platform using amram we would give uh, a very good account of ourselves sometimes a shockingly good account of ourselves with, with the the uh, the jets we were, were up against um you know launching these missiles from quite some way away and, and obviously just pumping out of the fight before they'd even seen us so um it was a very, very capable air-to-air -air platform. Where it sort of started to fall down a bit was it was in the close air combat role, although you could fly really, really small turns with this thing, but um, no reheat. So once your energy is gone, you can't get the energy back again. So that was a bit of a challenge. It couldn't pull as much G as some of the aircraft, but what we'd, we'd 
lose out in pulling G we could get in terms of min radius turns, dropping the flaps, maybe dropping the nozzles a little bit and, and pulling uh, smaller turns. Um, but yeah, a very capable air-to-air -air platform, um, but probably let down by its lack of reheat, being able to get that energy back when you needed it. Andrew, can you talk us through the handling of the Harrier? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it was a, a real challenging aeroplane to fly. I don't think there's ever been an aeroplane like it, and there probably will never be another aeroplane that's as challenging to handle. Um, again, the instruction was excellent. Um, the instructors are the best in the world and um, but a really challenging airplane to fly particularly obviously in a v-stall regime that it was renowned for and predominantly uh, the transition from wingborne flight to hovering flight and vice versa that was a particularly dangerous environment yeah. operating the aircraft um, so uh, hovering itself once you've done it you know a few times was okay but that transition out in and out of it um, was was really really challenging but we had a really great time to learn all those techniques at RAF Wittering the beginning and uh, flying training uh, landing in Vigo pad in a sort of wooded clearing and uh, uh, but but yeah very challenging airplane to fly the F-35 now of course one of my mates is a, is a test pilot on it um, designed to not be difficult to fly which is good that's how it should be. There were multiple ways to um, operate the Harrier in a sort of circuit regime I guess or to and from the boat and um, most people are familiar of course with the th throttle and, uh, and the nozzle lever. Um, just taken into the, into the circuit, our typical approach in the circuit is what we call the nozzle so that was a fixed power variable nozzle approach. Um, so somewhere downwind we'd set the amount of power we thought we needed, uh, from memory it was 80 to 85 percent RPM depending on the weight of the aircraft and then we would take our hands to the nozzle lever and through the head-up display and what we had a thing called an audio alpha gauge in our ear which would beep high tone if the alpha was low and low tone if the alpha was high, obviously high alpha is bad because yeah. it might depart the aircraft um, and we would control the alpha looking through the head-up display listening to the audio alpha um, around the final turn to the point where we then move into um, transitioning to hover. So at a certain point we checked the engine performance, it was around 100 knots in the Sea Harrier. I think the GR9 was about 50 knots, so it shows you the difference in performance yeah. of the wing. Um, and we check in the head-up display what we call that we've got three flats. So there was symbology in the head-up display like a hexagon. Okay. And if we had three flats or less of that hexagon filled, then we knew that we had performance to hover. If we didn't, we didn't. So um, then you'd move your hand to the nozzle lever pull it into the hover stop usually and then as you um, le left wingborne flight moved into hovering flight you'd apply extra power to hover the aircraft um, and then into the hovering regime but that was one bit and accelerating away from the hover again another challenging environment in fact i nearly had an accident on the ocu doing this um, one of the things you had to be very very careful of with the sea harrier transitioning to and from hovering flight was keeping the ball uh, or the vein i think there's yeah there's a wind yeah. weather vein on the nose there in the middle so if there's any crosswind you always had to have that in the middle if you didn't the jet would have a thing called intake momentum drag and essentially without getting to a whole load of technical stuff um, if you didn't keep the ball in the middle, it could create a rapid yaw of the aeroplane. Secondary effect of yaw is to roll the aeroplane and it would very rapidly roll upside down and there were plenty of people killed that way in the early stages really? of the Harrier. Wow. And in fact, my first ever acceleration away from a hover to wing pawn flight, I was so fixated on keeping the ball in the vein in the middle that I nozzled out too quickly. So having had the nozzles down, hovering flight, to accelerate away, you put a bit of power on and you smoothly move the nozzles rearwards with the nozzle lever. Uh, but I nozzled out too quickly, felt myself going down, heard the uh, alpha warning in my, um, 
in my ear, they're high alpha, this is bad. And, um, and then one of the instructors has said, if anything goes wrong, undo the last thing you did. <laughs> so I moved the nozzle lever rapidly back to the hover stop again and went vertically upwards pretty quickly. <laughs> but I removed the issue. Uh, I, I think I failed that trip. But um, yeah, a really challenging way to uh, operate the aircraft. Uh, we could do conventional landings with the nozzles all the way back as well. Mm -hmm. But um, that was a, a, a really demanding um, approach and circuit, very fast, close to the wheel uh, limiting speeds on the outrigger wheels. Um, and required very, very accurate handling. And we wouldn't do it unless we'd had a problem with the nozzles. Andrew, can you talk us through DACT in the Harrier? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, going and doing DACT is always good fun because, you, you know, it's your first chance to see how all your tactics and, and your personal ability and that of your, your mates works out against other aircraft. Um, I was lucky enough to fly, you know, DACT against a number of different aircraft. I think the most, um, most memorable DACT uh, would have probably been against an F-15C. And uh, we'd been off to the EW range, done some uh, work against uh, simulated surface-to-air missile threats, been to the tanker, uh, and then we were a bit late, because the tanker was a bit late, so we were a bit late meeting up with Vader uh, 1, who was uh, an F-15C over the North Sea somewhere. And um, I think we called our status Tiger Slow 2 plus 240 or something, 40 minutes on task. This thing came back with a ridiculous amount of weapons, ability to stay on task, obviously supersonic cool as cucumber and we uh, we arrived with this f-15c 2v1 against this f-15 and uh, i mean if anyone's ever done air combat or seen things these things just look like they're not even flying uh, f-15 is a, it's a great weapons platform like that was a real standout dact moment for me um what was the outcome on that uh I can't remember. I think we did all right on one of the mergers, but I think another one perhaps we didn't do as well as we could have done. But predominantly, I don't think this jet, I don't know if this jet's got the probe on it, it hasn't got the probe on it, but they see how we would often fly around with its air-to-air refueling probe on all the time. And uh, that probe would inhibit us from turning left as well as we could right, because it was uh, acting like a bit of a wing, oh, really. It yeah. So it was, well, it didn't stop us turning left, but it just wasn't as good. And it, and it created, we didn't need any more drag, and this probe, of course, was extra drag. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we were off screen earlier, but uh, you actually mentioned uh, an incident with the SU-22s. Can you share that story with us? Yeah, that was, uh, that was a really cool day. So it was my first um, day, well, first proper day doing a, a, a sortie on the front line. We'd flown out from the UK to Poland for exercise Polish dancers, we'd uh, named it. And, <laughs> and, um, and the first mission was me and a, um, a mate of mine called Judge, and we went off 2V4 SU-22 fitters at low level over Poland. And, you know, and I remember we, we'd, we'd sort of, before we'd merge, obviously we'd fired our, our simulated AMRAMs at them, and then we merged with these aircraft. And it was like proper Cold War stuff. Saw these aircraft coming in over the snow, super low level, doing stupid speeds that we couldn't keep up with, um, plugging in the burners and poking off away from us as quick as they could. But I just remember thinking that was just, uh, you know, that was as close to doing Cold War type stuff as you could probably get. That was, was like a, a bit of a wow moment. Like, it was, because yeah. it was my first mission on the front line. So that was a, that was just a really, really, no, it was a fantastic, fantastic sortie. So can you talk us through the cockpit? Uh, yeah, I mean, essentially, if you were to get, a, I suppose, a Lego, uh, cockpit assembly of instruments and bits and then just throw them at a wall that had got glue on it <laughs> that'd be the that'd be the sea harrier cockpit i think it was an amalgamation of uh, you know the early generation harrier moving through to slightly more advanced stuff obviously the gr9 was super advanced compared to the sea harrier in the cockpit 
but um, yeah, a really um, small space to occupy. Mm. Good, good visibility. You sat quite high up, so if you're looking over your shoulder at other aircraft, you could see back over the top of the aircraft quite easily. The cockpit was yeah, pretty complex place to be. Uh, lots of stuff going on in there. Lots of levers, lots of dials. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's it's a, it's a an interesting place to spend your life. That's for sure. Was there any uh, digital screens in that? Yeah. So we obviously got a head of display, um, relatively small compared to something like the Typhoon, but um, had a multifunction display and of course a radar display. Um, the multifunction display we would work uh, using a. a pretty good hands and throttle and stick uh, HOTAS type system. So uh, pointing the radar in the right place, given the information on the targets from, from the Freddies on the ground. Um, and then we'd use a radar system to obviously search vertically. I'm going to avoid doing things with my fingers. <laughs> These sort of things, that's what we do. Uh, looking up and down and where you're looking left and right with the radar um, on the radar display. So yeah, there were a couple of uh, electronic displays, but then a set of standby instruments, much like the Hawk T1 had, mm -hmm. and then the rest of it as a lot of switches, a lot of dials going on in the Sea Harrier. Did you work with the RAF Harriers at all? Um, we did, yeah. So when I was finishing my training at RAF Valley, that was the time when Joint Force Harrier was in its sort of initial stages. Right. So we're going back a long time. And in fact, one of my um, good mates, um, uh, Scranbag, he went off to, he was the first Navy student to go off and fly the GR Harrier. Oh, right. and, um, and then I went off to fly the Sea Harrier. And then subsequently um, embarked on Invincible, the GR uh, nine jets would be on the, on, on the aircraft carrier along with, with the Sea Harrier. So that was really cool. It was like a sort of, uh, it didn't last very long actually, but it was a really cool period of time, yeah. So how many, was there a lot of um, exchange pilots coming from the RAF that you worked with? Uh, there are a couple, I think you've interviewed one recently, uh, JP, <laughs> who still owes me beers for building a swordfish aircraft, uh, like a, a third scale replica swordfish aircraft. That was your job, JP, and you shouldn't have got me doing it. Um, <laughs> and there was another guy, um, yeah, Willie Hackett as well. <laughs> he was uh, another uh, Air Force exchange guy. So yeah, we did have a couple and a couple of US uh, Navy pilots on exchange as well. I was just going to ask, yeah, did you work with the US Navy much? Uh, no, I didn't do much with the US Navy, but the, well, I didn't do anything with the US Navy. A few of the guys did. I was in hospital having an operation when the ship deployed out to the US. Right, I think those yeah. guys had a good time out there, but unfortunately I missed out on that, on that opportunity. So was the ship a, a, a dry ship or could you have a beer afterwards? <laughs> after <a flight> <laughs> I cannot answer that question, sir. <laughs> no, one of the big differences actually between, um, and in fact, I spoke with my, my mate Scrumbag on, on a little podcast episode recently. We were chatting about, would you rather have uh, Royal Navy operations or US Navy operations? He'd been a Royal Navy Harrier guy and he'd gone on exchange for an F-18s with the US Navy. Oh, wow. And um, and he said, I'd like the... the uh, US way of flying aircraft, get what you do, enjoy yourself, mm -hmm. take your jet away, etc. But I would like to have the living conditions of being on a Royal Navy ship, which was far more relaxed, and yes, you could have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andrew, I know you have a few memorable stories, but can you share a few with our viewers? Yeah, some of the most standout ones really for me were on the operational conversion unit, and um, this aeroplane not only was it challenging to fly, it's only got one engine. Um, there's not a lot of redundancy in all the systems and on this um, on the OCU I had a couple of pretty challenging emergencies to handle. Um, the first was an engine failure so I was doing a flight back, it was the third flight of the day actually, back from RAF Wittering to Royal Naval Air Station Yeovilton uh, at 24,000 feet crossing uh, an airway at 90 degrees which military traffic often does uh, and um, my wingman, instructor pilot, 
was behind me in his, in his aircraft and he'd said, well, the weather's deteriorating, let's head back to Yeovilton uh, and you can get your first pair's lead in a Sea Harrier out of it. So I did and at 24,000 feet, there was a bit of a rumbling noise from behind me and then what I could describe as really a big, big explosion, big pressure sort of explosion and the whole aeroplane started violently shaking. Um, didn't really know what happened, obviously I thought it was something to do with the engine. So I looked down and the jet pipe temperature was rocketing up towards a thousand degrees which was a lot hotter than it should have been so I shut the engine down. Um, really extreme vibration in the aircraft. Um, tried to relight in a multiple relight attempts um, and this process of from 24,000 feet down to 9,000 feet when I managed to get the engine restarted only took about two minutes. Um, in controlled airspace complicated by the fact that I was IMC so I couldn't see anything I was on standby instruments and the vibration was so bad it was hard to see those instruments wow. properly the engine did restart but it wasn't producing much power and I was talking about nozzly approaches um, I couldn't set enough power to fly a traditional nozzly approach I could only set somewhere around 65% RPM any more than that the engine started making even worse noises <laughs> the vibration got even worse but that meant I was in a regime of flight which I wasn't there was no way there was no um, uh, package that was taught to teach you how to land the aircraft like that. Right. So I found myself flying somewhere between a nozzly approach and a conventional approach, uh, back to RAF Wittering, uh, threshold speed just under 180 knots, and that was the tyre limiting speed on the outrigger wheels. And when I landed, I put the nozzles forward into what they call the power nozzle bra braking PNB, um, so like reverse thrust effectively, right. powered up the uh, throttle to slow down, um, the engine seized, big explosion, big fireball in front of the aircraft <laughs> as it surged again and I went through it and then just sort of trundled to a stop with the fire crews waiting for me so that, that was one and then um, yeah, three about three months after that on my penultimate flight on the OCU at about 29,000 feet uh, I was bustering up to catch up with my uh, wingman which is in a TV2 intercept uh, again another huge explosion this time I couldn't hear it I was very loud noise couldn't see anything um, and realised, uh, and then looked and pretty much the whole of the not so central warning panel in the Sea Harrier was lit up. Um, and I realised that the canopy had shattered. Uh, it, not only had it shattered, it had surged the engine, so the oh. engine had sucked in parts of the canopy. Um, and uh, a pretty frenetic sort of 15, 20 minutes making an approach into RF St. Athen, where it was pretty miserable weather, so it was raining on me, flying close formation, Cabriolet um, with, with a, an engine that was decidedly dodgy now by this stage yeah. and, but managed to, to get the aircraft back safely to, um, to St. Athen. Uh, I had windburn on my eyes, bits of perspex, um, sort of tiny little bits I got on my face. Um, so it was, a, yeah, it was a challenging day out, interesting day out. So did you train like, for these type of emergencies or similar to quite often? Um, we did train for them in a simulator, um, but you know something like a, an explosive decompression like that is it's what they sort of term as a bit more of a, a black swan event. It's a bit like uh, you know um, Sully Sullenberger into the yeah, yeah. into the river, and, and of course you can't train for all of those sorts of events. Um, but again, just reiterating, training in the military is exceptional. Training on the Sea Harrier is exceptional, um, and and that's what pulled me through. I think. So overall, did you enjoy your time on the Harrier, apart from them two crazy <laughs> <laughs> I did, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, for me, it ended a bit early, unfortunately, due to some problems with my back, but it, it, was, um, it was a really, really enjoyable time. Incredible aircraft to fly, 
best pilots in the world without a shadow of a doubt to work with and um, yeah I, I really enjoyed my time. I look back on it actually with fond, fond memories even, even though there's some some sad memories as well um, which we've not covered in this video but uh, but yeah a, a, an incredibly enjoyable experience. Yeah so do you ever look back in your logbook and be like Christ, I did that, you know, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's what I would be doing. <laughs> I have looked back and seen some flights and it's amazing how if you just look, some of them are just, you know, it's, um, it's R2, which is a radar two so you're sortie, the, you know, your second introduction to using the radar system, I can't really remember that. But then some like obviously first step landing on the boat or, you know, the, the TV4 SU-22s over upon those, those memories or, and I remember doing some air to air fueling and seeing a mate of mine that I'd gone through fast jet training with that was Air Force and I've seen another one air to air refueling with two Jaguars and my oh, mate brilliant. was and there was and else is that Tenno and he goes Scrabble and I see see him in his Jag and it's me and a Sea Harrier so those sort of things you know you can't look, help but look back and smile at those sort of memories. So we've got a couple of questions from our Patreons here Andrew and this is from Alexander most challenging mission in the Sea Harrier. Um, I think I can think of a, a training exercise it was uh, off the top of my head it was called Wicked Warrior it was a pretty busy um, flight. We air to refueled I think twice, we did some ship attack, we did some uh, DACT um, and obviously BVR stuff against F-15s and F-16s, I think there were Jags involved, Tornadoes involved. So it was a really, really busy uh, mission. I think it was around about four and a half hours of duration. You, you just don't stop. Um, that was probably one of the most challenging things I could think of. And yeah, another one from Alexander. Biggest threat to the carrier uh, on your time flying the Harrier? <laughs> Probably me trying to land on it, Alexander, to be honest with you. <laughs> That's really and this is from Noel. Any memorable DACT or BFN missions involving your time on Harrier? Great question, Noel. Um, I think, again, I spoke about a time with this TV4 SE22 fitters, but also in Poland they had MiG 29s. And uh, the first time we flew against MiG 29s, um, we were doing pretty well in the BFM, uh, uh, sorry, the BVR stuff. But um, when we got to the merge and started in the air combat with these MiG-29, absolute monster aircraft. I just remember my wingman shouting Scrabble break right and uh, as I did I looked over my right shoulder because I knew where the aircraft threat was like to be and all I saw was this big ball of vapour with two carrots sticking out the back of it and it was a MiG-29. <laughs> so I think I pulled so hard the aircraft departed but <laughs> it was uh, that was a pretty cool day out. Yeah the Fulcrum can get out of any trouble with them burners. Oh yeah incredible, incredible jet yeah. And uh, last one from Noel, um, how reliable was the Sea Harrier air-to-air -air radar? How much of it was an art or experience? Um, bit of both, certain jets seem to have, for no particular reason, a better radar picture than others. Um, a lot of experience did come into it, but also where you pointed it, you know, user error was probably likely to be the, the thing. But the radar really was very, very good um, against both air-to-air -air targets and air-to-ground targets. Of course, modern radars probably kick the backside out of it now, but it was very, very good in its era. Was it the Blue Vixen? Blue Vixen, yeah, correct, yeah. So we've got a couple of personal questions if you're happy to answer. Yeah, Andrew. go ahead. Yeah, right. okay. So what did you do after your time in the Royal Navy? Uh, so yeah, my time in the Royal Navy was a bit of a premature uh, end for me for various uh, medical reasons, but um, I was lucky enough to move into another flying role, which was with the airlines, and I joined Thomas Cook in about 2006, and, and that's where I've been ever since, is the airline world. Um, I, I genuinely uh, love airline flying as much as I did military fast jet flying. It's very different, obviously, but now I'm a long-haul pilot flying a 787, and I've got to go to 
places in the world and do things in the world that I never thought I'd be able to do that are on people's bucket list just once in their life uh, and I've got to do them multiple times in multiple countries so I feel incredibly lucky um, to, to have done that. So like what's the average like layover? Do you get a couple of days to yourself or is it back here? It can be as, days? good question Mike, it can be as small as you know 18-20 hours so really short time after a long flight it could be as long as a week so um, some of the better flights, I really like going to Santiago in Chile, um, I've been whitewater rafting there, gliding in the Andes, I love Mexico City, South America as a destination is just incredible. Um, but yeah, sometimes we get some longer stays, but a lot of the time it's, it's not quite what people think. Um, it's some pretty long nights out of bed and, and short times down route. Yeah, because you often see it on movies, you know, like the captains and they come out with their sunglasses and a hat. <laughs> if you wear sunglasses and a hat, then I'm not going to talk to you. <laughs> Definitely not buying you a beer. <laughs> so, do you have any hobbies? Uh, I do, yeah. So, I'm, I'm, I think really when I left the Navy, I then moved away from this flying aeroplanes for flying aeroplanes sake. And around eight years ago, someone just said, Do you fancy going and having a go at gliding? And um, I jumped in this glider with this instructor and we went and flew on a ridge, flying in ridge lift. So, we stayed up for about an hour. I, it blew my mind that I could stay airborne in an aeroplane without an engine. And since then, um, I've really got into, into the sport of gliding and racing, competition flying, so racing other aircraft around the sky. It's an incredibly dynamic. Uh, type of flying it still blows my mind every time I do it it's probably some of the most fun and most demanding flying weirdly you'd think uh, next to see Harry I've ever done to do it well it's really really tough so but I, I absolutely love it and if anyone's uh, never tried it before go and check it out it's a fantastic sport yeah I've seen a couple of um, photos on your Instagram you know, like there's been so many gliders, it looked like an elephant march, it was like so many of them. <laughs> oh, we've launched at my home club at Lasham Gliding Society, we launched regularly over a hundred gliders in a space of an hour or so, and I've been in thermals with 35 other gliders, very, very close, close formation, close, but, and I call it a gaggle, it's just like a random collection of aircraft in one bit of sky, so yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty challenging, can be quite dangerous, but uh, amazing fun. Do you have your military hat on when you like, kind of like... Yeah, I mean, do you know, it's interesting you say that because a lot of the um, things that I do in Glide, like joining other <laughs> aeroplanes in a thermal when they're circling, is very much like joining a single circle fight right. in a fast jet. So I'm sure that all of that stuff I did in my fast jet training has brought itself into my sport of gliding and uh, certainly handling the aircraft. Um, so I think there are a lot of similarities. Favourite aircraft you've flown? Um, I think the Hawk's got to be up there, just because it's just such a great aircraft to fly. Um, other favourite aircraft? I really enjoyed my time on the Firefly. I know it's a little single engine piston aircraft, but I think probably because it was the first time I thought I'm really starting to do this, I'm starting out on my journey. And uh, I think the memories of it, it's never just about flying aeroplane, it's what you did with it, the people you were with. So I think probably the Firefly, I just really loved that time of my life. Brilliant. Aircraft you would lo love to fly? Um, I would love to fly an F-22, a Raptor, I think, um, as a fighter pilot's aeroplane, that's got to be right up there. I suppose it's getting older tech now, if you look at something next to an F-35, but um, every time I see that thing display. Uh, or Miros 2000 as well, get old school, but um, just a big, big engine, big burner. I'd like to fly Miros 2000. I'm you said then, because most people, it's uh, Spitfire. So oh yeah, nice <laughs> I would like to fly, who wouldn't like to fly a Spitfire, but uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you also run um, Flight Deck Wingman. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, Flight Deck Wingman is a company I started when um, I'd left the forces. And initially I started it to uh, help um, military pilots 
become airline pilots. So for anyone that wants to become an airline pilot, you often go through an assessment process, interviews and all sorts of group exercises and military pilots, you know, we've become a little bit institutionalized. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, yeah, so I started helping out my military mates. Now I help loads and loads of people, hundreds of pilots we've helped pass interviews, apply to, for jobs and, uh, and, and ultimately get the airline job that they want. And that's what Flight Day Wingman's designed to do. And it's really, really successful. I love helping people. So yeah, yeah check, check it out if, you're, if you want to be an airline pilot. So where can we find you actually online? Um, so all the usual social media channels, um, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Flight Deck Wingman, three separate words, that's where you'll find me. Brilliant. Well thanks very much for coming on the show Andrew. Thank you Mike, thanks everyone, I really enjoyed it.